It's only entertainment. Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. Today, we got Todd Sullivan. He is with Cannapreneur. Uh, he is with Communications Investor Relations to talk about a Massachusetts vertically integrated company. Todd, thanks for being with us at The Talking Hedge. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be on. Appreciate it. So Cannapreneur, for those who don't know, what is it? The Cannapreneur Partners are building a vertically integrated cannabis company in the state of Massachusetts. Uh, Massachusetts was the first uh, legal adult use state uh, east of the east of Colorado, actually. Uh, in 20, uh, 2019, we put our first adult use dispensaries in. So we have cultivation, extraction facilities, dispensaries are bringing to market. And uh, we're looking now that uh, the rest of the Northeast has joined us in legalizing adult use cannabis. Uh, we're looking to expand into those states. Okay. So you were at the uh, Traders Expo. that's hosted by The Money Show that was done in Vegas. Uh, it was my first uh, Traders uh, Expo. We launched our Traders app, the Tor Alerts app. Um, and you had been there a few times. So what, what were you looking to get out of that show? Why, why did you have a booth there? Yeah, so there's a lot of interest in private placement cannabis investments right now. You know, everyone, everyone kind of went the public market route and has gotten burned. And I think there's some structural reasons why that those stocks are kind of going to be kind of lingering down where they are until, uh, until legalization comes and they're kind of fully unshackled from the, the burdens they have around them right now. Uh, but the, the private markets, uh, you know, investors are realizing the gains of the success of those businesses. Just the cannabis industry itself is incredibly helpful. I mean, helpful. Uh, in the U.S., so uh, we're looking for investors in the company. And there's a lot of people who want to, you know, try and get involved on the ground floor uh, in a privately held cannabis company, and uh, we're there to kind of meet them and see what they want to do. People are walking by your your booth. You've got maybe 30 seconds. What was uh, after day three? You know, you're throwing out a couple of different ideas. Which which uh, 30 second tagline or elevator pitch uh, did you find that worked the best? What what was your what did you end up saying that that worked? Better than Because no, we're dealing with accredited investors and $100,000 minimums. And most people don't realize that it's very easy to use an IRA, a 401k, a certified employee pension, or just a standard IRA to make private placement investments. And it's a, it's a very, very smart way to do it. You know, if you look at this scenario, if you use your regular liquid brokerage funds or IRA funds, well, if the investment doesn't work, it's the same outcome. But if the investment works, you know, you can be building significant wealth tax-free or tax-deferred, which is what Peter Thiel did with his PayPal stock. Now, people don't know he's sitting on $5 billion in PayPal profits because he took his private stock in PayPal when he got it, stuck it in his Roth. Uh, now he's a billionaire. He won't pay taxes on it. So a lot of people are using that strategy. So I think that was the, that would be the one thing I, I alerted people to that surprised the most of them that they could use it and actually how easy a process that it was. Mm-hmm. And tell me about the process of, of remaining um, private. We've seen a lot of companies utilize SPAC and it hasn't worked out at all. You've seen a lot of these companies stock retrace you know, 50 to 75% uh, or more. I've seen some go as negative as 85% off the uh, de-SPAC process. So whether it's a reverse takeover, IPO or SPAC, there's a lot of options that you, you've remained private in a time where banking is challenging and access to capital is limited. Why did you choose the private route and what has been the benefit in your opinion? So the, the one, I mean, obviously the one, uh, the one, opinion, the one uh, advantage of going private public early is obviously the influx of cap capital. 
Mm -hmm. uh, we have to see downsides of that. The cost associated with that capital is very expensive, number mm -hmm. one. And uh, number two, your ongoing compliance costs of being a publicly traded or even a semi-publicly traded company in the case of a reggae offering is still substantial. There's substantial costs involved. Uh, we are in a situation where we are fortunate right now. We are able to use our stock for acquisitions in the private space. So for us and our shareholders, it's been a huge advantage to be able to acquire companies with our stock versus selling it to the public, incurring the cost of that capital, then the ongoing cost of it afterward. It's been a big savings for our shareholders. So for us, uh, it's really a no-brainer at this time to remain a privately held company. As long as that stock has value in the market, which it does right now, uh, we're perfectly content to stay private. And just, you know, the compliance costs alone on a small startup company are pretty significant. And, uh, you know, they're just a drain on shareholder capital. So if we can avoid it, we're going to do as long as possible. I think the break even was like 20 cents. If you're OTC, you got to be at least between 20 and 40 cents trading for you to even break even on your compliance costs. And yet you see companies yeah. like uh, High Times trying to throw a reg A and, and just looking disastrous in the process. And it's not good for the brand. And then a DSPAC that loses, uh, you know, a, a significant amount of um, value is not good no matter what. So I, I, I'm, commend you for, for holding out. It probably isn't easy. Um, I think a lot of people have done it really out of desperation, right? It's, yeah. it's, the, it's the easiest, most significant way to get capital, which mm -hmm. is the number one problem facing the industry, right? It's not regulation. It's not the illicit market. It's not no interstate commerce. It's access to capital is the number one problem. So I think a lot of people are doing because they have no other options. Um, but it's not, it, 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 it's not, in my opinion, on a first small company, an ideal option, unless that's the only option you have. Let you me ask you, a, for it. let me ask you a crystal ball prediction. Um, I'm assuming at some point you'll be publicly traded because that's just the route it's going to go. You're going to get gobbled up by somebody eventually who's publicly traded at some point, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, so let's, let's move uh, into the future for a moment and say, um, when that happens, what is going to be more significant to the industry as a whole, especially pot stocks as they continue to move with election and not independently with their own um, fundamentals? What's going to be more significant? Is it going to be banking or legalization initially? Yeah, so I think banking is going to have a very, initially, banking is, is the first thing on the horizon. It's going to have a big pop in the stocks because everyone's going to think like the capital problem is solved now, right? Mm -hmm. Reality is that's not true. The major banks still are not going to touch cannabis until it is federally legal. So you may expand banking on the margins and some state banks or maybe some smaller regional banks will get into it. But your Citibank, JP Morgan, Bank of America, those guys are still not going to touch it. So I think what's going to happen is kind of like the election, right? The stocks are going to go up on that euphoria. When reality hits and they realize that the banks still aren't going to do it, the stocks start to drift back down again. At the end of the day, for a long-term staying rise and have these stocks actually trade on you know, results instead of news and emotion, the legalization is what's going to do it. That's going to remove 280E. Uh, 2D taxation will be a, the industry will become immensely more valuable literally overnight mm -hmm. uh, when that happens, and that's something that a lot of people really aren't focused on. But uh, even even I would argue that even just descheduling it from a one to a two or a three would do more for the industry than the Banking Act right now would do because that would immediately take it off the federal list and allow uh, some of the bigger banks to go, go into it the same way because they're not scheduling drug anymore. 
and it would uh, it would allow uh, access to more capital. So, mm-hmm. so you guys are, are in Massachusetts right now, vertically integrated. Are you looking to become a multi-state operator? Are there areas that you're interested yeah, in? To, yeah. So within the last year, uh, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Vermont, uh, Virginia all started adding uh, or adding or have plans to add retail dispensaries on the adult use side. So we're really fortunate to be a sitting in the first state legalized east of Colorado and then B now we're basically at the epicenter of East Coast cannabis because everyone around us is now legalizing. So uh, it's not a it's not a long drive to be in the states around us for expansion. So I've always found that interesting. I'm in Washington. It takes me six hours to get from Seattle, the number, the biggest city to Spokane, the second biggest city. And I'm still within the state. And that's not the whole width of the state, but I could probably get through uh, as, as many um, states, you know, if I'm over there, probably get through six states in six hours. Um, How important is that to have that kind of regional dominance where you're at? Or are you looking at like distressed assets like in Colorado for companies that have been out for a while? Or are you strictly looking at Northeast? We're really strictly looking in the Northeast. So I do think it's important that, you know, once you start developing your brand, so once you start having uh, known dispensary names or cultivation names in the marketplace, the tighter you can group those assets in states, the more brand recognition you're going to get amongst consumers and the, the other business people in, the, in your, because um, they'll be in your neighborhood, right? So they're going to know who you are. Uh, as far as nationally, as far as looking at distressed deals in other states, right now the math just doesn't add up. I mean, a distressed deal in Colorado or Washington or California is, is the upside is nothing compared to what we can do with our capital here in Massachusetts. It's a true story. You know, the a previous company our founder was involved with, you know, they built a dispensary in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is the second largest city in Mass, about a quarter million people. They put a million million dollars a half in it before they opened a the door. They sold it for 13 and a half million to Trulies. So, I mean, those are the kind of multiples that are available in these new, new emerging markets, especially the limited license states like Massachusetts. It's just, it, it doesn't make sense for us to be, you know, putting our capital. I mean, a million dollars in, in Colorado would do really well in a traditional investment, but just right now, the way the market is on the East Coast, it doesn't make sense for us to do that. Okay, so you're looking at limited markets and new emerging markets because that's kind uh, of all emerging markets, but they're just newly legal states. Right, right. Yeah. Probably mean, limited license states. Right. So, and that's because of, of a, a quick potential um, exit strategy and, and a higher valuation. Well, so typically, the, what I like about so I like for a couple of reasons I like the limited license states a lot. Uh, number one, it tends to create wealth at the local level first, right? So when you're, you have the states where they hand out 50, 60, 100 licenses at a, at a swap, and, you know, I think Illinois already has more dispensaries than Massachusetts does. We've been open for two and a half years longer than them. Um, what it does is it allows the larger, more well-capitalized companies to come in and just buy up swaths of, of assets, right? The limited license states really prevent that because here's a scenario. It's about two years to open a dispensary in Massachusetts. You know, those publicly traded companies can't go to the shareholders and say, hey, in two years, we're going to have, we're going to have revenue from Massachusetts. In the public markets, that's, that might as well be 50 years, right? So they have to go and say within three to six months, we're going to be acquired dispensary. You know, they have three to six months to go through a change of ownership. And that's when they can say they're going to do it. So what the forces that the MSOs and the large companies to do is kind of sit back and look at final licensure as they start coming up on the websites. Then they start making offers for them. 
So it really does allow the local entrepreneur, the local business person who can get that license, get that store to market, they, they get all that wealth. So that one, 1 million to 13 million scenario I gave you, that wealth all went to local people, right? That wasn't a big multi-state company coming in and making all that money. Sure, they bought it and they're going to do just fine with that asset down the road. But it really, it starts the wealth creation industry at the local level, which is what I really like. This is, I mean, that's really the whole point of why states are doing this, right? Mm -hmm. And then for competition reasons, once you're open, you obviously have a, you know, a barrier to entry in the market. It gets harder and harder to find good locations. Um, and those locations have to be better vetted because you only have you know so many um, bullets in the chamber, so to speak, as far as how many you can own. Why would somebody go with you guys? So you're, you're seeking capital. Um, yep. So two-part question, what is the cost of capital for you? And why would somebody go with you over, you know, a truly for whatever? Yeah, well, it's an, so it's an emerging market opportunity, right? So, you know, it, it, we look at it like, you know, truly from the public company stocks, those shareholders right now um, aren't being rewarded for the gains and the operational excellence of those companies, right? Uh, the stocks have come down since steadily since the election. Um, they're just sitting at the lows. They kind of waffle along the lows. Um, they're not being rewarded for that. And they won't be rewarded for that until it's federally legal and institutions can come and invest in these companies and Wall Street can invest in, you know, JP Morgan won't even let people on his prime brokerage buy legally traded cannabis stocks. So the amount of demand for these stocks is there. They just can't act on it right now. So those stocks are going to be this way until we get legalization. On the private side, though, you know, you own 10% of a dispensary that's grossing, you know, a million, $2 million a year, you get your 10% of the profits, right? You're getting that cash flow from that business each year. You're, you're, you're getting the benefit of the results of the operations and the cannabis industry, which is growing 30, 40% a year. You're getting the direct benefit of those efforts. The publicly traded shareholders just aren't seeing that right now. In my opinion, is they won't until it's completely legal and we have a somewhat normal functioning uh, market and that could be you know that could be a year it could be five we really don't know uh, but as long as it's state by state like right now the private side is for me the private side is the way to be on it right now yeah i would agree with you there's too many sin clauses for big money to get in it's too coupled with with federal legalization and it's um not enough uh, fundamentals for for each of those individual companies but i guess that's a buying opportunity right now because they're incredibly um, maybe uh, depressed, but as this bull market comes to an end, I don't think anybody's safe. So everything's going to probably crash. So, I mean, that's why I have this app. Don't listen to me. I listen to AI machine learning with our app. I'm terrible. Um, like when I get in, that's when the market crashes. So that's my luck. I think it really is a time arbitrage right now, right? I mean, if you mm -hmm. got X amount of capital, you say, look, I'm buying, uh, I'm buying this ETF or this basket of cannabis stocks and I'm my horizon is five years down the road. And I'm just going to not pay attention to it in the next year to two years because it's going to be up and down as rumors go around, rumors go. I think it'll be just fine. But I mean, uh, statistics tell us most people don't have a five-year time frame. I, really I got a problem with that too, though, because buy and hold, you get absolutely slaughtered. If you bought and held Bitcoin last year, you would have made 28%. If you traded it all day long, you would have made 90 something percent. You look at sure. Kathy Woods and she's like, oh, we're all about value, but she's grabbing on a falling knives left and right as these stocks are just plummeting you know she's like just wait five years and and you'll make your money back well what about inflation burning my money in the meantime there's all of these issues i'd rather burn my flour uh now than wait five years and 
have inflation destroy it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't I don't own any of the uh, publicly traded uh, plant touching cannabis stocks. So yeah. well, I'm not sure I actually have this one glass house out in California that I like. Mm. Um, I like the management team there. I like what they're doing. But again, I got the warrants and it's like, hey, this I'm looking five years down the road to that company. So you know, I can't tell you what the stock's doing day to day. Yeah. But you know, a little bit of risk capital is put away in a corner. And if I'm right, I'm really right. If I'm wrong, I haven't lost too much. So but I like the management of that group. They're a good company. I would agree with that. I actually interviewed them on Seeking Alpha for um, CEO interviews. I do that every yeah. once in a while for them. And uh, Glasshouse was good. And Leafly yeah. um, looks like a, a decent company too. So there's, there's some of them out there. There's some j- hidden gems. There's a um, lot of good companies. There's a lot of really good cannabis companies that public shareholders just aren't going to see the benefits of those results until it's legal, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, so can I... Can, a little more dramatic, right? So... Can I put you on the spot and, and look at some Massachusetts uh, sales numbers and, and get your uh, opinion about it? Please. So this is uh, coming from headset numbers, looking at Massachusetts sales uh, in January at 124 million and 116 million uh, last month, uh, which isn't a lot. I mean, there's several colleges around there. I would assume that it would be higher than that. Is Is there a reason that it's... I mean, I, I don't know the area. So you tell me, is okay. that good? So here's what I will say. I say there's probably less than 200 dispensaries open in the entire state of Massachusetts. Okay. So you look at the California numbers, California just Whoa. hit, I think, 900 adult use dispensaries. Yeah. So if you look at a per dispensary basis, Massachusetts crushes every mm. single one of those states. Mm-mm. So uh, our market will keep growing as we keep adding dispensaries. But again, the limited license states slow that up and allow for a lot of local wealth creation. But yeah, on a per dispensary level, there's no state that can touch Massachusetts right now. How come Maryland sucks so bad on their numbers? It's only it's only medical. Ah, thank you. Yeah. Okay. So right okay. now, the only states in the on the East Coast that are selling adult use cannabis is Maine and Massachusetts. The rest are all in the process of either opening dispensaries or putting the regulations together for it. So. Hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah. Sales growth though doesn't look too bad. For, I mean, relative to everyone else, the sales growth, bef- you know, before COVID was crazy. Triple digit numbers really kind of scaling back. Either that's inflation, in my opinion, where people are just feeling the pressure. Like my my brother in law completely quit, didn't cut back, but quit because he couldn't afford it. And so, if if that's the case, then everything else is kind of being squashed as well. And I'm, I'm seeing some of that cannabis headset is, is uh, inferring from the data that it's more about um, the sales previously were heavy users like myself coming in the market a lot more. And then now we're scaling back because we can go outside again. I don't think that's the case. I think it's more about uh, the price pressure from, from inflation. Can, do you have an opinion? Are you seeing people pull back? Uh, even though those numbers are phenomenal, it is not what we were seeing before as we can kind of go back to 2021 and look at uh year over year sales growth as like 60 80 701 is that right 701 in june whatever it was a lot remember in 2020 no we weren't close in 2020 uh yeah so there's two things you got to look at here there's 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 consumer there's, there's organic sales and there's growth sales, right? So Massachusetts had a big build out in 2021 as far as suspensaries. Mm. So a lot of those growth numbers 
are new dispensaries hitting towns of new customers entering the market, right? So this time of year, it's a particularly generally slow uh, in, in, in New England. You have, we've had a, a pretty snowy, pretty wet winter, so that slows construction down. So the rate of new dispensaries hitting the market to add to those overall sales growth numbers are going to be lower. Um, the basket count staying pretty good, which is good. We're still higher of the, if you look at the legacy states, and I call those like the originals. So you got California, Colorado, Nevada, Washington, Oregon. Mm -hmm. Then the East Coast, you got uh, Massachusetts. You know, we're still well above those legacy states as far as our average basket, four years into legalization where we are in mass. Mm -hmm. um, you'll see the rest of those come down too. But again, that's the limited license. It keeps supply restricted, keeps demand high keeps those basket prices high also. That's yeah, and they're, go they're going in four times as often as Maryland, 1.6 million times versus 400,000 and spending on average around 70, 75 bucks, which is yeah. significant. But I'm also assuming that the cost of a vape pen is still 60 bucks and probably dabs are about $60 a gram and flowers probably still $10 a gram. Still very expensive on the retail side too. Yeah, we are, we are definitely more expensive than than our neighbors that's for sure mm -hmm. i mean those prices will come down but maybe the transactions will go up california's um, fifth largest gdp in the world over seven million transactions uh, but you can see washington our prices are half that of yours because we have so many stores that it's a matter of convenience so we go when we want so we're going to go 3.3 million times but only spend 33 dollars you know every time we go in yeah about convenience yeah you can you know you can you can it's easier for you to swing by the dispensary and grab a cup of pre-rolls before you go out. You know, mm -hmm. you're not driving 15 miles out of your way to do it, right? Some of the people here in Mass are, they're, they're making weekly buys each purchase, not, you know, not for Friday and Saturday. So, and it's a proximity game for a lot of them. What are they buying? So in Arizona, conservative state limited license, similar to where you're at, but it's conservative uh, in the community. So you don't see as many pre-rolls like you do in Washington. You see vape pen that's more discreet. What are people buying when they're going in, you know, 1.6 million times a month? It's still flour. Still flour and pre-rolls are still half the market. Uh, edibles in Massachusetts are rapidly growing. The drink space is exploding in Massachusetts. We just had uh, Livia Brands bought out uh, by, I think, who was it? AYR that purchased them, I believe it was. Mm. Uh, you know, they, they hit their first million dollar a month revenue and they got bought out for a deal. Uh, with earnouts is worth up almost $60 million. Wow. Uh, so the drink, yeah, the drink space is really, really hot uh, in Massachusetts, the edibles, you know, it's, so it's funny. We were, you know, we're still, the shoppers are still THC based. Uh, we haven't got to the point where people are looking for, you know, uh, lower THC levels, but different, different aspects of the, of the bud, different access to the plant that they're looking for. It's still basically, they still shop highest THC down. We are starting to get a little bit of a value brand, value brands coming in and some value shoppers coming in, which is important because once we can get that wholesale and retail top shelf price down a little bit, mm -hmm. you start bringing a lot more people into the market uh, because it becomes more affordable. There's that magic number. I think it's 70 bucks. Uh, once we get below there, we start, the market starts another flood of new entrants coming in. So that'll be good. Um, yeah, I, don't, I think, I think my, my perspective is the edible market long-term is going to be the real play to be. Um, inconspicuous consumption is going to be the way to go. Even vapes, I think, are going to kind of fall by the wayside as technology improves and nanotechnology improves. And we can have drinks that have the onset offset timing similar to alcohol and mints that have that quick onset. People don't like about edibles. They take and they wait an hour, right? 
mm-hmm. two or three hours for they feel the most effects. If you could shorten that to you start feeling it in 10, 15 minutes, like when you have a beer, and then it, it, it's, it's, you know, instead of being a peak in two or three hours, it's coming off in two or three hours. That's the experience. I think the market just goes ballistic at that point. And uh, that becomes the way to consume it. And uh, the flower, I think you'll see flower sales fall then. So, yeah, we'll probably, if California is any indicator, we'll see flower probably dominate 40% of the market and then everything else will take a piece of the pie. But until prices of ounces reach what we have here, 60 to $80, and that's before my 30% industry discount, uh, I, I think that uh, you're not going to see as many people going into the store. Um, but I, I think that's kind of all, all a matter of time before all those prices kind of come back down to reality. Uh, is anybody asking... Is anybody asking for coffee? I'm in Seattle and it's the thing I love asking around because I, I feel like for some reason that's going to be the normalization. Like when you see like infused coffee, you're like, all right, cannabis is normalized because it's expensive to do and it's yeah. not very popular. So when you do see it, then I think that's an indicator of something. <laughs> is anybody yeah. asking for infused coffee? So people are asking for a lot. So we have, we have a company here that does infused ice creams. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have the typical cookies, gummies, whatever like that. We, you know, the, the rubs are just starting to come here. Some of the tinctures are just starting to come here as it comes out. But yeah, right, right now for the coffee, most people are just taking the little tinctures and taking a couple drops and putting in their coffee themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think that uh, I agree with you that, you know, you get a infused coffee beans that people can make their own coffee with. It's going to be a, a huge hit. Uh, especially if you get the cannabinoids right and it can be sort of an energizing coffee drink and not something that you don't want the caffeine and the cannabis sort of canceling each other out, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so if they can get the cannabinoids right and give you a little lift with that, I think it's going to be a huge seller. Yep, I would agree with that. There's still a lot of things that don't work out. The niche you know, products that you would think, chocolate-covered espresso beans, lemonade. Uh, it's kind of a summer thing. I guess it's seasonal. It does kind of work for, for uh, the most part. Uh, ice cream, we can't have that because they're not allowed to have anything that requires refrigeration. Um, so that doesn't work. But you, you have got ice cream. That's cool. Anything else that's unique? Um, no, I think the ice cream is probably the unique one. That's just a function. I mean, New England. I think New Englanders concern consume more ice cream per capita than any place else in the world for whatever reason. We have an affinity for it here, so that makes sense why that they're doing that with the ice creams. Uh, but you know, they're unique flavors and they, they put them in these things and they do it. Uh, as far as uniqueness of brands, I think that's probably the most unique thing we have out here right now. I mean, I always enjoy going out West and doing dispensary tours because some of the stuff you guys have is just, you know, you, you remember you're, you're five, six years ahead of us in your development uh, on the West coast. Uh, I, I, you know, people always like to use baseball analogies. So we say you guys are in the seventh or eighth inning. I think we just got to the ballpark for batting practice, to be honest with you. So uh, we have a lot of growth and a lot of exciting things to do on the East Coast. And again, that's I think that's the opportunity for investors too. It's just so much growth to happen here. And what people don't realize is you know, people, people think, oh, cannabis has been legal for, for eight years. We, we missed it. No, every state that legalizes is a brand new market, just like day one with all the possibilities. People haven't missed anything right now. If anything, now is a better time to get in because you're you can learn from the mistakes of the people that went before you and you don't have as much time to wait for legalization as they did when they got in four or five, six, seven years ago. So it's just such an exciting time in the space. So I'm assuming that um, lobster flavored butter is probably not something that they're selling on the shelf yet. No, no, no. I don't, I don't think, 
that wouldn't be a thing New Englanders would buy. There would be a, it would be they'd be too snooty when it came to something. We've like got that. we've got Washington Apple everything, but it's all for the tourists. So it's yeah, same concept. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, they would uh, they would be appalled by such a thing. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Um, what, um, so you mentioned a couple of things that would, would draw in skeptical investors. What are a couple other things that, um, you know, if, if somebody is skeptical or on the sidelines right now, and they're looking for an investment opportunity, what are a couple of things that you would say about Canapreneur that might be intriguing for some that are looking for a similar opportunity? Yeah, so I guess one, one, Obviously, the one thing that stands out about Canapreneur is most of your startups are people are just doing startups, right? So your group will come together, they're starting, they're getting their wits together, they're getting some money together, they have a startup. Well, this startup, you know, is led by someone who's already done it in Canada space, right? We're not doing it for the first time. So our founder, Michael Scott, was the founding shareholder of a company in Massachusetts called Major's Remedy. Uh, they founded that company in 2017, which is about a year before legalization actually started in Massachusetts. Um, and in four years, they built a company that was just acquired for $114 million. So to turn $500,000 into $114 million in four years, uh, he knows how to do it. And we're, we're basically we're replicating that model right now. And we're going to, the difference we have with Nature's Remedy and the advantage we have over them is that when they built that company, they were landlocked. They were the only state they could open it in the entire Northeast. Everybody else was still banned or still illegal. So our huge advantage now is, yes, we can do that in Massachusetts. We can duplicate it in five states around us because legalization is coming out. So we can build a much bigger company uh, than the one that was sold for $100 million just last fall, actually. It was September 21, it closed. So that is one unique thing about us for a lot of people in the, in the East Coast is we have that experience. We've been through the process before. We're looking to do it again, but do it on a larger scale because the options, the options available to us now, uh, and it wasn't available in Nature's Remedy when they were building it. Mm-hmm. You know, you got that one guy who's saying you should have put the money in Dogecoin. Yeah, yeah, there's always the one. Or you sold too early. You know, Nature's Remedy, they sold because they were three founders. Two of them were in their 60s. And uh, they wanted to uh, cash out for their, their good winnings and go to Florida and retire. That's stupid yeah. money. Why wouldn't you? I mean, you yeah, could just... That. Like your partner's doing the same thing. Put the money right back in. It's still really, really early. So yeah. utilize that first mover advantage. The really, yeah, that's the key. It's just being early in these states when they open up. It just, it's, it's a, it's a way to print money. It really is. Yep. Uh, the industry does move really, really fast, though. So, in the next couple of years, what are some um, anticipations that you have for the industry, and what are a couple of goals that you have in order to remain relevant uh, in in the time of change? Yeah. So, I think in the next couple of years, I, I don't. I'm not of the opinion federal legalization is coming from the top down. I think it's coming from the bottom up. I think by the time the feds get around to actually legalizing this plan, you're going to have 25 to 35 states legal for rec anyway. It's kind of going to be an anticlimactic event, right? Um, I look forward to some legislation coming through that allows some level of interstate commerce or at least clarifies to the industry what they're thinking on that. Because that, that's a big thing. And um, the not knowing whether you're going to, I mean, you know, if, if you're building a facility in New York State to grow cannabis, you want to know, hey, can, if I'm allowed to build this outdoor farm for three acres, can I go three acres of cannabis and can I sell it over state eventually? Or should I start with one acre because I can't get it across state lines yet? So for long-term planning for the industry to supply it and adequately service it, you kind of need 
uh, that sort of outlook or sort of that sort of um, clarity into the future. So, um, you know, Canopin or Partners, we, we really look forward to having a brand that when people drive up and down 95 on the East Coast, or driving from Massachusetts, you know, you go from Maine to Florida on that Route 95 along the East Coast, that they can, you know, they can see Canopin or Partners or joint operations with our dispensary chains and just know that they're going to get quality product and have a great retail experience and uh, something that they can count on all the way down the East Coast, all the way up and down the East Coast. So we want to make a, you know, our, our retail experience differentiated from a lot of places, not so transactional and more consultative. And we want people to know when they see that sign that that's what they can get inside and want to go in there. Where can they find you at? Are you, uh, you got a website or? Right now in Raleigh, Massachusetts, the Menden, Massachusetts are the first ones. Uh, Raleigh should be open in the next 30, 60 days, men in the next, uh, say, two to three months. And uh, we'll be very excited to service people in those locations soon. We're just waiting on final approvals for Raleigh. Perfect. And what about online website? Uh, so jointoperationsma.com and then canopinerpartners.com for the holding company. Okay. And then I will put your LinkedIn contact information in the, uh, in the description so people can contact you if they want. But I think with that, we're gonna have to roll this one up. So I want to thank my guest, Todd Sullivan. He's with Canopreneur, uh, a vertically integrated cannabis company in Massachusetts. Todd, thanks for being with us at The Talking Hedge. Have a great day. Appreciate it. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canna podcasters right here on PodConnex and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.